Welcome to the Jason Tim Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your Thursday to come hang out with Tommy and I. We still do not have a name for the show, and you guys are doing a bad job of sending us suggestions. We need more. We need better. Tommy's suggestion was gun to my head. I'm a little iffy on that one. Uh, uh, have you come up with anything better since then? Any? Uh, I, I got nothing, man. I'm sticking with gun to my head. <laughs> as terrible as it is. Out of a punishment to this podcast, if we can't think of something better, we might have to, to, to go go with that one. Um, anyway, I'm super stoked. We have just about an hour today before we got to lose Tommy. We're going to uh, start with just a little bit of a, a breakdown of, of uh, last night's Warriors game and just a little a thing that's been on my mind having to do with the way we evaluate players. Then Tommy and I are going to give our takes on the uh, kind of uh, state of analytics in basketball. I know we're a couple of days behind on that one, but I've had a lot of thoughts on that that I wanted to share. And then we're going to end by talking about what I think has been an interesting topic as of late, which is just like the idea of the way that the league uh, uh, portrays certain stars and the way that the league uh, uh, portrays itself in general and uh, in, in the media and, and just kind of uh, some ideas about that. And we're going to bounce around to a bunch of teams in the process. Um, but I wanted to start with what was something interesting from last night's game because we kind of get on this merry-go-round where – Every single time Steph loses or every single time LeBron loses, you get the same kind of loud criticism uh, from one side of the equation. And I'm not talking about what you were saying, Tommy, because I know you had a very specific pointed criticism about something having to do with what's happening on the court. But it's more I'm more just talking about the real toxic stuff on either side. And I think this season is super fascinating. It's like a case study, in my opinion, of, of the way that uh, of the way that we evaluate players, because, you know, we like to think that basketball is this sport that is very, you know, uh, uh, that the individual has a great impact on, which it does compared to other team sports. But at its core, it is still profoundly a team sport. And I think the Steph LeBron thing is the best example of that, because if you took a random poll of people in 2018 and said, who's like, who's better, Steph or LeBron? You'd have a, a group of them say Steph, and you'd have a group of them say LeBron. And and Steph was on a contender at that point, and LeBron was on a middling playoff team. You know, and then this year, I would vote I would wager if you asked those same people, they would still say Steph and they would still say LeBron, despite the fact that the roles had been reversed. And LeBron's on the contender and Steph is on the middling playoff team. And I think that has to do with the fact that it's very subjective the way that we evaluate these guys. And quite frankly, like I'm over the idea of saying like so-and-so is better than this guy because they won head-to-head matchup or they won this specific series. Like, I don't care. Like, there's a better case for Steph over Dame than having beat Dame in the playoffs a few times. To me, the case is he's better off the ball, which makes him more versatile. He's a better playmaker. He's got better control of the game. You know, those sorts of things. He's better defensively. Or if you're making the case for Dame, it's he gets – uh, he gets, he's better isolation score. He's better at the end of games as a, as a shot creator. Like those sorts of things are more interesting than me, to me than the team results because the team results are just so convoluted. Uh, so my question for you is, does what I'm saying make any sense to you? And then also, I, I'm, I think this is a good segue into what your legitimate basketball criticism of Steph was last night. It does make sense. But I mean, the way that we operate is all just kind of an echo chamber of Twitter and a lot of the stuff that you're saying, it's just too nuanced of a conversation for Twitter and you can't do it in 240 characters or 280, whatever the limit is now. Um, I, I think that's what a lot of it boils down to, right? It, you, you simplify, you get reductive um, just by nature of the platform. You can't 
expound on things unless you go on these long threads. And if you're going on a long thread, nobody's going to read it, right? Like you, you really have to get lucky to have people read each and every thought that you put out in the thread. It's all going to get kind of lost in the mix. People are going to respond to the first tweet and they're not going to see the context of what you're saying. So yeah, that's a better way to evaluate players. Absolutely. But you're never going to get that if you're just basing your entire conversation off Twitter. And to go on top of that, I do think winning matters. Like, I don't think Steph is better than Dame solely because he's beat him in the playoffs, but I don't think it's insignificant that he is 10 and 0 in games played against Damian Lillard in the playoffs. Like, if Dame was, if the conversation was a little bit closer, I don't think it would be 10 0. I really don't. Because every time it comes down to it in a playoff game, Steph has been better than Dame. It's, and it's just quad evidence. It's, you know, or I should say it's convoluted evidence. It's convoluted, it's convoluted evidence and it doesn't tell the whole story. And I'm not trying to argue that it does, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a mirror into what the conversation should be. Like he, is he 10 and 0 better than Dame? No, he's not 10 and 0 better, but is he a good amount better? I still think so. Um, but to go on top of that, I mean, last night, one guy was better for 45 minutes and then he wasn't better in the last three minutes. And I, I don't know exactly what that points to. Yesterday he was four for 15 in the second half, something along those lines. Four for 15 in the second half, a, a horrendous third quarter. I don't think he made a shot in the third quarter. He might have made one late. Um, but just a really, really bad second. Three at the end when they were up three with one minute left, that would have iced the game. That was the yep. big out to me. Just a shot that he never misses. Never misses. Never, ever misses. And then the, a couple floaters. I don't know how the last floater stayed out. That was really like. He put that basically right where it should have been. Maybe it should have been a little bit softer off the backboard. Um, so he got a couple unlucky rolls. Draymond missed putback. Is it that one, if I remember correctly? Um, no, the Draymond missed putback was on the the three, and then he took a floater with like he took a floater with like thirty seconds left, right before Dame hit the step back to go up two. He took a floater off the board, and um, it like rolled around the rim and then sat on top of the side of the rim for a second and rolled out. So he got. He got unlucky on a couple of them, and then he got fouled on a drive uh, where he actually made a layup on Cantor, like hit him right across the face, and they didn't call it. Um, but point being, he just – there were too many times late where he like looked to get off ball or looked for more screening action where it's like, dude, you just got to go get a bucket, man. Like you have – you're being guarded by Rodney Hood or Robert Covington or Carmelo Anthony, like guys who you can take one-on-one, and you just didn't go get a bucket. And sometimes Portland doubled him and forced the ball out of his hands, and that matters. Like that's not insignificant. But at the end of the day, you got to find a way to win that game. Your team had the lead. And if you're the player that everybody says you are still, you need to go win that game. And it's not an isolated incident. This has happened multiple times this year. It happened against the Pacers, against the Knicks, against the Magic. Like, it isn't a small thing. And look, he's carrying a huge burden. Nobody's saying he isn't. Um, it's, it's different than Portland's situation in that Golden State has put this really good defense around Steph. And they've kind of forfeited offense. And Portland has kind of forfeited defense and put this really good offense around Dame, even with CJ and Nurk being out. Like, they still have very capable offensive players. So, it, it comes back to team building in a lot of ways. Like, it's tougher for Steph because he really is manufacturing everything for them. But it's not an excuse for not making shots at the end of the game. It isn't. I'm sorry. Like, it, the game was close. you got to find a way to win that one. And they could have three or four more wins this year, year if he had done that. Uh, like it's very similar situations the last night. So everybody got mad at me once again, and I understand it because I've become the, <laughs> the kind of linchpin for this argument or this talking point. But it, 
Yeah, I was just very disappointed in how he performed on the stretch, and I don't think I I should be, I don't know, castigated for that. So I think uh, this is an interesting, like I, we're going to kind of uh, uh, do a little Venn diagram here over some other topics that we're going to touch on today. But to me, this is like a, a a problem that I have, one of many problems that I have with a purely analytical approach to basketball. Because I, I tend to have a very middle ground approach to this kind of stuff. Like uh, I was listening to a great podcast, which you guys have to check out if you haven't checked out yet, which is the one that Jason Maples did the other day. Um, he brought on, I, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name right now. So Joseph Gill. Joseph Gill, yeah, he brought on a guy who works in analytics, and they had a really smart conversation surrounding a lot of this stuff. Um, and you got to check that out if you haven't done yet. That's on on Jason Maple's podcast. But that said, uh, uh, there's this the name of that podcast, by the way, is Temple of Hoop. Yes, Temple of Hoop podcast. So the there's this idea of what we quantify to be an open shot, and we and we use that as kind of like the the only measure of a shot's quality or its probability of going in which is an issue that I have because like, so for instance, like the, the example that I've used with you several times has to do with the 2019 finals and the shots that Steph was getting at the end of the game against the Raptors. And, you know, uh, if it, just by strictly looking at clips, you see separation and you see Steph getting a quality look. Uh, but what I see personally just for, and you, you can relate to this too, cause you've played basketball as well is like, there's this unwritten, there's this untold part of the story, which is how much energy it took to get you open. And, and this is something that I think is lost in a lot of defensive metrics. It bothers me when you see like, uh, uh, you know, one of these heavily analytics oriented guys be like, oh, well, this defense is actually not as good as it looks because teams are missing threes against them, which automatically is being quantified as luck and, and not the fact that that defense wears you down so much that even when you do get open, you're exhausted and you can't make the shot. And that's me, a that, really, that's, no, go, I, I would, I'll let you finish, but that's a really good point. Tom Thibodeau's defenses always have that happen. They, teams always shoot terribly from three against them, even on open threes. And it, it's exactly what you're pointing to. Their teams are always tired against them. And you, it's one thing if we're looking at a four game sample size and we're like, okay, teams are shooting 15% from three they're getting lucky. That's one thing. But when I've got a season's worth, you know, or half a season's worth of data that tells me that even when they get a defense's or offenses get open shots against them, they're just not converting them at a high rate. That tells me that you're getting your ass kicked everywhere else on the floor. And then all of a sudden you find yourself open and you're almost like stunned to be open and you're exhausted and you're not getting the right lift and you're leaving stuff short and you're just missing shots. And so my point is, is like, you know, Steph Curry going four for 15, this kind of reminds me a lot of what would happen in, uh, in 2018 with LeBron. Is, uh, and even before that, where it would be like, people would be like, oh, well, you know, in the, in, the, in the fourth quarter, he was two for six. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, when you are carrying the load that you're carrying and when you are, you know, uh, under the, uh, that intense physical uh, stress for 48 minutes, it's normal to get less lift and to be less effective at the end of games. And, and all I'm saying is like, as far as Steph goes, you know, if you put him in a situation where his workload is less, I believe this version of Steph 2021 Steph would appear to be more in control of games kind of to, to what you were talking about earlier. And the last example I'll give, and then I'll let you respond again is, you know, uh, to, uh, wide open shot is quantified as a shot that has at least six feet of space between the closest defender and the shot, according to what you see on NBA.com. So in my opinion, though, 
a contested shot for me when I'm in a smaller role or uh, not even necessarily a smaller role, but going against an inferior defense or whatever it takes, a pull-up three that's technically with a defender in front of me when I have good legs and good rhythm is actually a better shot for me than if I'm wide open but exhausted for whatever the reason may be. And so from that standpoint, like, I don't think it's ever a, a true, a, a, you know, assertion of, of a player's shooting ability to look at open versus wide open and things along those lines. I would look at it more in, you know, in relation to what his workload is. I think, I don't think it's a coincidence that LeBron's three point shot has fallen apart as he's been in a, in operating in less spacing and in a bigger workload, if that makes sense. No, you're not wrong on any of it. And a lot of it just boils down to we have all these numbers available available to us, but a lot of people don't know how to contextualize them, right? Like no context is applied to any of these numbers. And you're right. Sometimes a, a pull-up three with kind of a semi-contested hand in your face is actually easier than the wide open one. But specifically pointing to Steph, he's always shot incredible percentages on wide open threes. He's just, for whatever reason this year, he's just missing those ones at, at a higher rate than he ever has. And maybe it does point to the workload because the contested ones are going in at basically the same rate, which is the weird part. Right, Because if he's making the contested ones at the same rate and he's missing the wide-open ones, I don't know what to attribute that to. Maybe it is defenses being more physical, and when he gets the wide-open ones, there's such like a sigh of relief and, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm open, that he's more likely to miss it because he feels more pressure in a way. Right? Like, it's all human stuff that we can't, we can't put into numbers, and we probably never will be able to. That's why, as good as analytics are and as good as they will get in the future, like we're probably kind of just at – you know, the tip of the iceberg here, they're going to get a lot better and we're going to be able to, to quantify even more um, parts of basketball. But there's always going to be a human element that we cannot quantify. And the the rush to do that, to just paint everything by numbers, will ruin basketball to a certain extent if we don't get control over it. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just the reality of the situation if we continue to go down this path where numbers are God. They can't be. They never will be. Well, there's a basic, there's a basic like uh, uh, you know conundrum that takes place when we start to paint any section of the public with a wide brush, and this is more of like a, a worldview kind of thing. And uh, when you factor in the reality that no two situations are alike, um, and it, you know that's why you know any sort of of sweeping directive that just the response to a specific you know whether it's an income like income brackets, and we talked about this uh, a, a while back having to do with like stimulus. It's like an income bracket in Arizona where I live doesn't remotely resemble, you know, something in California. And, and so everything is relative to your circumstance. And the same goes for, for basketball analytics. And this is something that I think uh, uh, is tough. And that's why I, I, what I really enjoy with analytics is, you know, more scoreboard related uh, uh, measures. So for instance, like, you know, uh, points per possession, that is uh, weighted to throw out garbage time or to throw out, you know, uh, end of quarter heaves and stuff like that. Like I like that sort of thing because it's the scoreboard. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it's one of those things where you can actually uh, draw a direct line between that and winning. And I thought Joseph Gill uh, on that podcast did such a good job of explaining how that's the number one thing that gets players paid. And, and it's, the, it's one of the number one things that he focuses on when he's coming up with strategy for players in their scouting reports and things like that. Because like, you know, for instance, yeah, if you, you used to talk to a, a, an analytics guy about the mid range shot and they would tell you for, at first it was like no mid range shots. And then there was a bunch of pushback and they responded with like, okay, end of games end a shot clock. And what I was always pushed back on is like, you can never quantify how comfortable an offensive player is when he's going into a shot. 
So for instance, like a slightly uncomfortable three, you know, if you, you may, you may attach a points possession points per possession to that based on it being a three point shot with a defender at a certain distance. But in reality, it's an uncomfortable three and there's no way of quantifying that versus a comfortable one dribble pull up, you know, in a point by per, a point per possession uh, stance, it factors in all these other 15 footers and 20 footers that kind of get convoluted in there. But if you're really comfortable and in rhythm in that shot, it's not a, you know, one point per possession shot for you. It's like an 80% shot. Like when you're comfortable and you're in rhythm, it's hard to quantify how like you, that shot's just going to go in and you almost get a feel for that. And I'm sure you feel this way too. when you watch games, like you almost can tell when a guy's going up into a shot with his form, and how confident he raises up, if it's going to go in or not, it, 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 not to a hundred percent effect, but to close to that. And I think I don't. I don't think you can ever quantify that. If that makes sense. No, the, I mean, I'll keep going back to Steph. His game last night was the perfect example of this. He looked super in rhythm and super comfortable in that first half. And then the third quarter, it was like he was getting open looks. And he was like messing up his footwork. Um, he was kind of stutter stepping and pump faking into shots instead of just shooting the ball. And those shots would be, you know, higher value shots. They have a higher points per possession. You know, if you were just measuring it by how wide open they were, they were higher quality shots than the ones he was getting in the, in the first half. And even the ones he made in the fourth quarter, he made his two toughest looks in the fourth quarter, but it was all because he felt more in rhythm stepping into those shots. So yeah, it's, it's this weird thing well, where the numbers will never be able to quantify it, no matter how granular we get and how good the tracking data gets and how good um, you know the formulas become. It's something where we can never actually nail it down to a science because at the end of the day, these are humans. These aren't robots. They, and it's going to be humans playing basketball unless there's a robot basketball league. Like mm. it, it's just – it is what it is. So, yeah, it it's such a weird conversation because people – in the Twitter sphere, you get pinned as either like an analytics guy or an eye test guy. And I don't think it's so cut and dry. Like if I say one thing bad about analytics, all of my analytics friendly followers will be like, Hey, be like, what are you talking about? Like, dude, and they'll throw a bunch of analytics in my face. And then if I quote something that's analytics related, a lot of the eye test people will question where I'm coming from. It's like, no, I'm just, I'm operating on this occasion by one of the two things. Cause sometimes the eye test is more important to me. And sometimes the numbers actually are more important. And mm. that's why it has to be on a case-by-case basis. It, you can't measure any two things alike. Yeah, so uh, th- that was something that uh, I thought was really interesting in that podcast as well. As he was talking about, uh, they were talking about how like uh, a measuring Rudy Gobert's individual defense versus in a switch on a particular player. And he was talking about how like, you know, if Rudy Gobert gets involved in a pick and roll with Kyrie Irving, they just won't switch it. But if he gets involved in a pick and roll with Alex Caruso, he will switch it. So a bunch of their individual uh, defensive metrics are measured based on him switching only on to these weaker offensive players. It's selection bias. It's total yeah. selection bias. And the same goes for like, like one of the things that, and that's why like for me, it's, I, I lean slightly more eye test and I, and I, and I evaluate metrics that make sense to what I'm seeing. So I'll give you an example. When Anthony Davis to me, has been having a bad year as a post score. Uh, uh, he seems indecisive. He's not, uh, he's doing a better job attacking double teams than he did last year, but he's still not great at it. He's not making anything from the mid range and he's not making anything from three. He's just, it's just a really uh, like a, a, a inconsistent season on that end. But according to 
metrics on a point by a point per possession basis, he's actually having a career year as a post-up player. And what I think is convoluting that, and I, you know, I can't prove this unless I literally rewatch every uh, Anthony Davis post-up from the season. And maybe if I lose my job or something, I'll go do that one of these days. But the point is, is like, you know, from my eye test watching, which I've watched every game and I've watched most of them twice, uh, an Anthony Davis post-up against an inferior uh, uh, defender where they, uh, uh, like a, a really small guy where he has like an easy little, you know, drop step and put in those are, he's converting at an extremely high rate, but then he's being almost completely unaggressive in other matchups. If you have a reasonable post-up defender and you throw it into him and there's bad spacing, he'll just kick it back out. And so that's not even measured as a possession in there. Uh, especially if it, if they end up running another action, they'll only count it as a possession if it's like swing, swing three or swing three or whatever it is. And so from that standpoint, like, I just think, you know, I, if I had, you know, whereas like if I'm watching a, as another specific eye test thing, like, oh, LeBron is leading the league and points per possession and pull up threes off the dribble. It's like, oh, wait, well, literally for two months before he got cold here in the last few weeks, he was making that shot almost every time he took it. So it's like, those are the kinds of things where, you know, if it makes sense to what you're seeing, you know, if you're, you don't, you never want to lie in the face of overwhelming evidence. The great example of that is the Rondo stuff last year. Like if, if there's just overwhelming evidence that when Rondo's on the court, you're losing. And when Caruso's on the floor, you're winning. Like that's a different story. Cause there's just so much data pointing in one direction. But I think, I think it's always important to either throw out eye stuff if the data overwhelmingly disproves it or throw out the data, if the, what you're seeing overwhelmingly disproves it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's where I hate when people use points per possession and isolation or anything like that to measure actual isolation scoring. A lot of that is just a player being smart enough to ISO against the right guys. Exactly. Right. And like Montrez, Montrez isn't getting buckets against other big power forwards. He's doing it against mismatches. Exactly. And not to like, come down too hard on Steph today, but a lot of times he's selecting the ISO, it's against bad defenders, right? So he always grades out well in ISO metrics, whereas some nights he really does struggle against really good defenders in those situations. And like we saw him panic a little bit last night at the end of the game. I thought Kerr ran a bad set, honestly. Like they they tried to do like a bunch of screening and dribble handoffs instead of just like giving him the ball and letting him go. But he got Draymond had the turnover? Yeah, uh, Yeah, this is the charge play. Um, but, but like, instead of just, he got one-on-one with Rodney Hood, who he's like, he killed off the dribble in the 2019 Western conference finals. He got him a couple of times last night and he like panicked. He was out top by himself and he tried to turn the corner too quickly instead of just backing out and like truly ice ISOing him. And he panicked a little bit in an isolation situation. He's a like, he's a great ISO player. Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is measuring him by the pure numbers is kind of dumb because he's really smart about who he ISOs and who he doesn't. Um, now yep we're good. all right we're back on I apologize to everyone. I've been recently moving and dealing with a boatload of Wi-Fi issues, and I will eventually get them figured out. You have my word. Anyway, so one other thing I wanted to say on the analytics front having to do with overarching metrics, and this is another thing that Joseph talked about in, in the pod the other day that I thought was interesting, this idea that like 
you know, uh, if you're looking at baseball, every single player has the same goal, which is to get on base in some way, shape or form, whether it's through getting a hit, getting a walk, hitting a home run, whether you're a, a big hitter or, or a contact hitter, your, your goal is essentially the same. And, and with basketball, it's not, you know, like you would never, uh, uh, measure, it doesn't make sense to measure Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's contribution in the same way you would measure Allen Iverson's contribution. Baseball, there's like a, a three true, they call it three true outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, what it, that's what it is in baseball. And you can boil it down to that because everything's a one-on-one matchup. It's essentially like if every basketball game was just one-on-one and you're just playing isolation all game. That's basically what baseball is. Yeah, I I can hear you a little bit, but it's still kind of like breaking up. Oh goodness! All right. Yep. Uh, give it a second. I'm good now. Okay. Um. Uh. Anyway, my point is, is like a lot of these when you, when I see some of these metrics like Raptor and LeBron and and mm-hmm. things along those lines, these like overarching metrics. The problem I have with that is it makes no accounting for that sort of thing. No yeah. player's job is the same. So, in, for instance, I'll give you LeBron and Steph. LeBron and Steph are, in our opinion, the number one and number two players in the entire world. And uh, uh, in this case, even though they both are primary offensive players, both of their roles don't even remotely resemble each other. You know, Steph brings this whole extra element with his off-ball play that LeBron really doesn't. And then LeBron brings this whole extra element with his defense that, that Steph really doesn't. Even, even within the top echelons of the league, in two of the uh, two very very unique uh, archetypes of stars, their roles are still incredibly different. And so the idea that you would attach one single metric to try to paint a picture of the totality of a basketball player's impact to me doesn't really make a ton of sense. And and you can even look at players who are to me at least somewhat similar, like a Jokic and a Steph, right? Like incredible offensive players, like maybe the two best offensive players in the league, but not great on defense. Even they play offense so differently that it's really, really tough to measure them against each other because Steph is obviously the best shooter we've ever seen, and that's how he operates. Jokic is a big man who plays out of the post. He can shoot the three a little bit, but he plays out of the post primarily out of dribble handoffs, and he's maybe the best passing big man we've ever seen. But measuring them by one metric or thinking that they play the game even remotely the same is ridiculous, right? Like I, I was actually having a conversation about this the other day with somebody. They, I said, you know, Jokic might be the best offensive player in the league. And, but of course, a bunch of Warriors fans jumps in my mentions. You're crazy. It's Steph, it's Steph, it's Steph. And they pointed out all these things that Jokic can't do that Steph can. I'm like, guys, you have to realize there are things that Jokic, a bunch of things that Jokic can do that Steph can't do. It's not this one-sided conversation. Well, this guy doesn't bring these things to the table and this guy does. Okay, that might be true, but the inverse is also true. And now it comes down to what is more valuable. And I mm-hmm. think that's the type of stuff that these metrics should try to quantify is, okay, what is the most optimal way, way to play? What is the most valuable thing? Is Are Jokic's post-ups more valuable than Steph's shooting? Is his passing more valuable than Steph's off-ball movement? I don't know how you quantify that. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. But I think 
when analytics get really good, that's the type of stuff they'll be able to quantify. And there is like a certain amount of that. You have points per possession. But like we talked about there, there's a lot of selection bias where it depends what the matchup is, who's on the floor, who isn't on the floor, who they're playing with. And it's just all stuff that we aren't going to be able to quantify for probably a long time, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and this kind of goes back to what we originally started this conversation with, which is the way we evaluate players. And, you know, I, I have said this many times and I, I, I really, really, truly believe it is 100% a subjective process because, you know, this isn't, this isn't like, you know, racing where you get a bunch of guys that have the identical vehicle and one of them ends up coming in first. And there's this very clear cut hierarchy in the way that they perform. Instead, it's 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 almost entirely different. Like everybody's got a different race car, you know. Like there's, and and it's been interesting to me to see, you know, uh, and and this is where the dishonesty on both ends I, I'd like to call out because there were so you know there there were people last night, including Draymond himself. You know, th- there was this quote that went crazy last night. Who was, it's like, oh well, our offense is kind of designed around getting shots for Steph, and we all just kind of have to find our our space there. And it's like that that's exactly what a bunch of crazy people in the warrior side of things used to say about LeBron and, and Oh, Jordan Clarkson and Rodney hood are struggling because they're trying to find out where they can be successful next to LeBron. It's like, no, actually they're both just way better at basketball now than they were back in 2018. Okay. Jordan Clarkson is a better basketball player now. That's why he's doing better. And, 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 and the players that are alongside Steph right now are not the same caliber of players uh, that we were seeing, you know, uh, alongside him in the past. And, and at the end of the day, like, you know, with with the exception of like really crazy extremes, like the James Harden situation in 2019, where it's like, they're really leaning into one player. Most of these guys are existing within a system that is more or less uh, distributed the way every other star is dealing with it, where it's like, they're, they're mainly responsible for generating offense. But if you're good, if you can play, you're getting your minutes, you're getting your shots, you're getting your attempts. Like, look at Dennis Schroeder. You know, no one I, – I even was a little skeptical coming into the season. Like, how is Dennis going to fit in, you know, with LeBron and AD having this give and take? And then you find out really quickly, it's like, wait, Dennis is really good. And if you get him switched onto a big, he's just going by him to the basket. And, and he can defend and he can do all these other Jason, you there? Yeah. A little bit. You're coming back now. So frustrating. I think there's something going on with my upload speed, but I'll get okay. that. I'll get that figured out. It seems like the upload just cuts out every few minutes. Yep. Uh, but the download stays steady the whole time. Yep. Uh, anyway, okay. I'll get that. I'll get that figured out. Anyway, point being, the uh, if if Steph's offensive talent around him was better, they would have success around Steph. There's no systemic change that needs to take place, in my opinion. Uh, you know, Steph likes to play a certain style. LeBron likes to play a certain style. Good players, good offensive players will find a way to succeed. And more often than not, just in the interest of being dishonest, we may blame the stars. But to me, that's not necessarily fair. And any sort of systemic change would end up hurting the stars more than it would help the role players, in my opinion. No, totally. I mean, 
look, man, everybody thought LeBron was washed two years ago. And then Anthony Davis came along and all of a sudden he's the finals MVP again, 12 months later. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, a lot of it is just based on that. Like if the tough part is, as a Warriors fan, it's like we were all expecting Clay to be healthy this year. Mm-hmm. And then he goes down on draft night, like literally on draft night, we're supposed to get this number two pick and Clay tears his Achilles. And now you're expecting a lot more out of this number two pick. Everything looks a lot different. And people are like, oh, you can't shift the future. You have to wait for Clay to come back. Clay's coming off an ACL and an Achilles. You might have to shift the future a little bit. You might have to go all in in a way that you didn't expect. I know you wanted to keep this number two pick. I know you did. But that might not be the reality anymore with a guy not playing basketball for 30 months and coming off two catastrophic lower extremity injuries. And that's where a lot of this just boils over. We all get frustrated every night because we thought we were going to have a chance to be a contender again. And our second best player went down and now they can't score. If he was out there this year, I think the roster actually looks okay for the most part. It's not perfect, but it it all makes a lot more sense. And I I mean, that's the frustration that boils over every night. And that's why I get pissed, basically. (laughs) So that's actually a really interesting uh, uh, segue into this, this LaMelo ball thing. Cause I think it's been ridiculous that people, you know, this kind of goes to what I was just saying about this offensive talent. Like there, you know, uh, I, I heard, you know, there's people, uh, everyone is just trying to defend this process. And the one thing I do agree with in terms of, in defense of, of the Warriors and their decision to take Wiseman is it wasn't as clear cut a gap w- during the draft process. Um, it was a lot closer. There was a clear roster need in the front court for the Warriors. LaMelo had all these question marks, fair or not. He had all these question marks, you know, coming out of New Zealand or whatever the heck he was doing or, or wherever the heck he was. But Australia, Australia. Yeah. But the, the, the point is, is that, you know, uh, the, the, we overthink these things a lot of the time. I can't tell you how many times we've overthought the there's only one basketball thing, you know, for, for multiple stars. We've been proven wrong every single time that's been the case. Even the most horrific scenario like Chris Paul and James Harden, it worked. Brooklyn's so proving think, it again right now. Brooklyn exactly. is proving it again right now. Exactly. And so the bottom line is this idea that like LaMelo wouldn't be able to fit with Steph or he wouldn't be able to do the same things. And, and, and then there's people being dishonest and saying that, you know, he's just doing it because he's in Charlotte and they're giving him the ball every time. It's like, well, they're winning. Okay. So they're giving him the ball every time, but they're winning. So you're, you're, it's, this is not garbage time. This is legitimate basketball success that this kid is having. And I think it's okay to sit back and be like, man, it would have been nice to have that next to Steph, especially when you consider the fact that he does have such an amazing off-ball game. And I, I saw this tweet the other day. This is the last thing I'll say. I'll have you take over. But it's like, it's like, oh, Draymond, you know, why would they need LaMelo? They got Draymond to have the ball with Steph's got the ball. I'm like, you, you think it's good to have one dude who can dribble with his head up while Steph is running around? Like, how, how about two of them, okay? Or what if, you know, what if, LaMelo and Draymond are running action and Steph is running around off the ball. Like it's, there's no scenario where that doesn't make that team infinitely better. Every night, the fanboys, every game, every single game, they complain about Brad Wanamaker. Every single game, incessantly. It never stops. And I get it. Wanamaker's been terrible this year. Like he deserves some type of flack because he was much better in Boston. A lot of that is the role that he's playing on this team, but that's besides the point. He's complained about every night. The guy who solves that problem is LaMelo Ball. James Wiseman isn't solving anything for this team right now. God love him. He's, I think he's going to be a good player. And I'll, I'll keep saying that because people are going to yell at me if I don't. He is going to be a good player. But right now, LaMelo Ball already is a good player. And it doesn't matter that he's playing with you know some good teammates in Rozier and Hayward. Yeah, great. He'd be playing with better teammates in Golden State, in Steph and Draymond. It would only make him look better. Maybe his numbers would be a little bit lower, but he would be, he would be filling a role for, that is needed on this team. 
every night we can play to, oh, Steve Kerr said it last night, need more scoring, need more playmaking. He would have provided it, right? And everybody who does this for a job had him as best player available. Everybody. By the time the draft was around, everybody had him. They might have not had him one, number one in their mock draft or number one on their board or whatever, but they all had him as BPA, best player available. I remember and, the Draft Express guys had him number one. I, I don't think Kevin O'Connor did, but I O'Connor know had Killian Hayes. O'Connor yeah, had Killian Hayes. catastrophically wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think, he had, I think he had ball number two, though. I'm pretty sure he had, he had oh, okay. ball two. But he had Wiseman six. Wasserman had Wiseman six. Um Schmitz had Wiseman at five. Like all of the weaknesses that Wiseman has right now weren't unknown. And so my frustration is not with James Wiseman because these weaknesses were known. The, the, the rebounding, the bad hands, the kind of average basketball feel, um, kind of bad lateral mobility. These things were all known. Like you could have watched a couple of college high school games and you would see it. And I am, I blame the Warriors front office for putting a kid who's 19 years old in this situation where they're heaping the expectations of a dynasty on, on him, a team that won three titles in five years. They're saying, hey, man, come in and take this over from one of the 20 greatest players of all time. How is that fair to him? It isn't. It isn't. And the, the way it would have been more fair is if you bring in a guy like LaMelo or any other guard who functionally is Steph's backup. So their role doesn't have to be that big. If you bring in a guy like Wiseman, who's a five man, and you're saying you basically got to be our starter from day one and be really good from day one, the expectations only grow. If you bring in a guy that plays the same position as Steph or Clay, it's like you can be the backup for a little bit and then, you know, come in and figure it out on the tail end. That's what the Spurs did and did with Kawhi in a way. He wasn't man who's like exact backup, but they didn't have a, there wasn't really a need at that position. It was anything that Kawhi gave them was great. They knew he could defend and they said, just go do that. Don't worry about anything else. The Warriors are asking Wiseman to do like 12 different things that things that he's not ready to do. It's just not fair to him. And so they just, I'll keep saying it. They need to push all the chips in and, and then we can stop talking about the Warriors, but it's just the, the guy was there to draft. LaMelo ball was the guy and we can argue about it, but it's very clear. Now he should have been the guy he's, Last 16 games, he's like 26 and six on 48, 43, 80 something from the field. He's incredible. He's mm. better than anybody thought he would be. I'm not going to sit here and say I thought he would be this. Mm. I thought he'd be, you know, like a better version of Ricky Rubio to start and then eventually maybe progress into like a Doncic level guy. I was, by the time the draft rolled around, I had him as that as an on ball creator. The off ball stuff has been super surprising offensively and the defense has been way better than anybody could have ever imagined, even his most like optimistic supporters. Point being, they had the guy they could have drafted, and they didn't draft him, and now they're stuck with a guy who's not going to help them win. And it's not his fault. It is not his fault at all. Yeah, and hindsight's always twenty twenty on this stuff. I mean, for whatever that's worth, like, I think draft, uh, pre-draft stuff. Like, I was making fun of Kevin O'Connor a second ago. Like, I love Kevin O'Connor. I think he knows his stuff. He does his work. He just He's great. He, got, he was wrong about something, and we've all been wrong. Mm-hmm. And But the, the point is, is like – you know, you're, you're betting on a teenager, uh, and, and God knows what a teenager is going to do. I know I was completely unpredictable as a teenager myself. And, uh, but at the end of the day, like when, uh, it's hindsight's 2020 and now you look back at it and you're like, huh, like young bigs are never good. You know, they had enough in the front court to be serviceable and have Draymond play the five for the most use the part. mid level like, on a big man. You could use yeah. mid level on a big man. Like there were things you could have done. You could have used their, they had a trade exception. They could have used that on a big man if they really wanted to, there mm. were other avenues to, to get big men. 
It just exactly. And, and the most frustrating part is the front office says, "Well, we still want to contend for titles." Then why are you drafting a guy that they have admitted when they drafted him? Bob Myers has said this. He's raw. He's untapped potential. There's a long way to go. You can't say you want to win titles out of one side of your mouth and then try to develop a guy like that on the other end. It doesn't work like that, especially if you're asking him to play a major role in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, and it, it is what it is. It's like at the end of the day, there's no point in complaining about it now. And, and Wiseman still has a great deal of, of value. Um, even Absolutely. if it may not be the Lamelo's value, he still is great. The, he still brings value to the table, and I'm with you. The, the, we've discussed at length that they need to move him. So before we talk about our last topic, I wanted to. Uh, this was something I meant to uh, jut to when we got to the uh, the stuff about um, analytics, and uh, um, I wanted to just quick kind of circle back. So when we were talking about you know uh, you know analytics is this uh, a lot of the, the the like the core spine of of analytics is based on this outside in approach and finding a way to maximize your you know points per possession by doing and the three point shot has an increased value which increases your point per possession right well again we talked about this a lot earlier no two shots are alike and I think this is a great example to talk about the difference between a Utah Jazz team and an LA Clippers team as just like a fundamental difference in basketball. So, for instance, the uh, uh, the LA Clippers are I, w- I want to say 29th in the entire NBA in shot attempts within five feet of the rim. Uh, they are they lean heavily on on created jump shots off the dribble. And uh, especially from their two stars. And I think it has manifested negatively in a bunch of ways, mainly stagnation, because if one of the easiest ways to get a, an offense out of a slump is to get easy shots. And they kind of just rely on difficult shots eventually going. And sometimes they just don't, which I think is part of the reason why they've struggled so much in the clutch. So this kind of is a great time for me to just kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, again, kind of harp on one of my core basketball philosophies, which is, you can have an outside in approach that is built on pressure on the rim. And this is what Utah does so well. Utah does not dribble up the floor and take a bunch of contested threes or threes off the dribble. Their guards will shoot threes if you go under pick and roll, but the the entire premise of their offense is putting pressure on the rim with Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley, which starts a cascading effect where their other wings will then drive out of a closeout and it's drive and kick and drive and kick and then they find this wide open three. And it doesn't feel like settling because of the pressure that you put on the rim. And it, it's what allows a guy, a guy that's really like set and in, in, in ready for a catch and shoot opportunity, you know, that kind of three-point attempt carries so much more value uh, than an off-the-dribble attempt because of the rhythm and because of the pressure that you put on the rim and the way you're fatiguing the defense instead of the other way around. And I do think it's, a, it's an interesting difference that you see between the Clippers and the Jazz and the way they generate their jump shots because both teams are considered jump-shooting teams. And the Jazz, for the record, I think are 25th in shot attempts within five feet of the rim. So they also lean heavily on jump-shooting. But it, to me, and you can tell me if you disagree, I just feel like they're – like fundamentally in the way that they discover and search out those types of shots, it's an, it's an inside out approach, if that makes sense. No, it definitely is. And they use uh, Gobert's roll gravity to do that too. Like Mm -hmm. they, you know, they have him constantly rolling to the rim to suck in weak side defenders and then kick out to shooters on the weak side. And then they're like, you're saying they're redriving it with their wings. 
I, I don't fundamentally disagree. Where it's where it's interesting, I, I keep going back and forth on this Utah team. Some nights I think, man, maybe they can win the championship. Like for the first half last night when they were playing the, the Sixers, I was like, God, they look so good. Like they are getting any look they want. Donovan Mitchell is getting any look he wants. He's abusing Ben Simmons, just absolutely taking him to task. And then that second half and that fourth quarter happens, and you're like, ow. Oh. There it is. They can't get any good looks late. Like, or, or Donovan Mitchell isn't willing to shoot the good looks late. He kept coming off pick and rolls late in that game. And Embiid was playing like a pretty heavy drop coverage. And Mitchell just wouldn't. He wouldn't either just take an easy pull up or drive harder to Embiid and suck the weak side in to get kind of that drive and kick action going. So it's interesting because I think the Jazz are like unequivocally a better regular season team than the Clippers. But in a playoff matchup, the Clippers kind of survive on those tough shots. And if I would trust them more to make those tough shots, because eventually Utah is going to have to make those tough shots. And it's probably just going to come down to Donovan Mitchell making them right. Mm-hmm. I don't really see another guy who can do that for them. Maybe Bogdanovich a little bit. He's got a nice little mid range game and post game and he can, he can get kind of crafty with how he scores. But if he's going up against Kawhi and Paul George, I think the Clippers are winning that battle. So it's just this really interesting conversation in how much should we value regular season success? We talk about it all the time, mm-hmm. but yeah, they definitely are different play styles though. To your point, they totally are, even though they are on their face, both shooting a lot of jump shots. Well, like even just something silly, like James Harden putting pressure on the rim as a, as an, as a pick and roll and isolation guy completely changes the complexion of Brooklyn's offense compared to the Clippers. Um, but it's just, you know, but you're right. You, you need to be able to do both. And that's what makes the Clippers so scary is if they, if they always stay in a rhythm for a playoff series, good luck beating them. But like, you know, that's why I'm always going to lean on teams like the Lakers and the Sixers as the most dangerous teams in the league, uh, because they do, they cross all of the, the, they check all the boxes, you know, they defend at an extremely high level. Uh, they have individual defenders that can stifle your stars. Like LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Ben Simmons are all players that if you put them on Kawhi Leonard, like Kawhi's in for a hell of a night. You know what I mean? And those those are those are advantages. And then they're versatile defensively too because they don't you know rely on one specific type of defense. For instance, the Jazz rely so much on Rudy Gobert in the paint. If you put a, a stretch big on him. And it's a stretch big that Rudy has to respect and won't just leave open. There's a, there's a, it changes the complexion of their defense. Whereas like the Lakers can defend and scramble and, and, you know, the Sixers, same thing. And, you know, but then there's the offensive side of the ball and it's like the Lakers and the Sixers both put immense pressure on the rim to generate three point shots. Now the Lakers for the record, not shooting well lately, but in my opinion, a big part of that is LeBron kind of taking it easy and Anthony Davis being out. So they're not pressuring the rim. Like they're just not pressuring the rim the way they do in a playoff series. I believe the reason why the Lakers made shots when it counted in the playoffs last year was the quality of three-point shots they were getting when things mattered was extremely high because LeBron and AD were 100% engaged in pressuring the rim and it was generating those types of shots. But then the, the, the Sixers with Embiid being as good as he is, and then the LeBron Anthony Davis effect, those teams can also, to the teams that are shutting off the rim or packing things in, and jumpers aren't falling on the other, uh, with, from the spot up shooters, they have these guys that can create extremely difficult shots in, in isolation as well. So they kind of check all three boxes. If you go to any of the other teams like Brooklyn, 
they don't bring it on the defensive end of the ball. The Clippers, they don't pressure the the, the rim enough. You know, Utah, they lack that elite high-end shot creation. Uh, it, uh, and the perimeter of, defense. They're going to struggle to lock good players down in the playoffs. So if we just use last night's game as an example, first of all, Embiid dominated Gobert, who's probably mm-hmm. going to win defensive player of the year again, which is just ridiculous. But Embiid, I mean, it's within a week, I think Embiid and Jokic or some other big men have just absolutely... Quick, just, how dumb does that John Hollinger, Rudy Gobert MVP piece look now? I thought about that last night. I almost texted you about it, and I was like, I oh, will just talk I tweeted it. <laughs> I tweeted it. I said, we need to send John Hollinger to Mars for saying Gobert's a top three MVP candidate. But Tobias Harris was dominating the Jazz Wings last night late in that game. Tobias is a really nice player. I don't want to take anything away from him. What's that going to look like when it's Kawhi or Paul George or LeBron James? It's going to get really ugly for Utah. And that's where, as much as I want to believe, I really do want to believe in that team because I think they're doing things in a very unique way. They've actually, as I've said, they've tried to do the three-point thing the correct way. They've actually gotten good shooters to do it. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's probably not going to matter because they – one, they don't have the perimeter defense to get it done. And two, they don't have the, the high-end shot creator to get it done. Um, where are you at on Philly right now? Because I thought that was a huge win for them last night, but it also took basically everything they had to get that win. So, uh, again, I, I put them – they're in my top three. I, I have Lakers, Philly, and Brooklyn as my top three. I Philly has struggled a little bit, especially against really good teams this year. So they're far from perfect. Um, but the reason why I view them as dangerous is those three things, like I said – I think what will eventually get them beat and the reason why I'm not sure if they can beat Brooklyn is at the end of the day, their offense is going to degenerate into Joel Embiid, which is what happens to all of the best teams. Like the, all, the Brooklyn offense looks so free flowing and nice. Guess what? It's going to turn into elite high end shot creation from their best players. It's going to get stagnant. Same thing goes for the Lakers. And I'm just referring to the late rounds against the best of the best on the defensive end of the ball. Uh, but who do you trust more in those moments? Like I know LeBron is going to find a way to, to kind of like decipher that to some extent, you know, and, and same goes for the Kevin Durant, Kyrie, James Harden trio, Joel Embiid. Uh, I, I, I'm, I can't remember this off the top of my head, so I don't want to mess it up, but I believe he's averaging more turnovers than assists this year. Might need to double check that, uh, but, but he's not, he's not great. And in the uh, at deciphering the defenses when they really load up on him, and in almost every matchup that I've seen, he's incredible for the record. Like his little his little step back three that he made over, I think it was Bogdanovich at the end of the game last night. That literally reminded me of one of those memes that makes fun of the big guy who runs the three point line. You ever, seen, you ever seen that meme where they're talking about the different players and they like throw the guy the ball to the guy in the post and then he just runs to the three point line and shoots a yep. three? Like that's what Embiid did on that play. It was funny. Like Embiid's incredible. I'm not trying to undercut him in any way, shape, or form. But when you're nitpicking amongst the very top of the league, you know Brooklyn and LA, they're they're not a team you can double out of existence. I'm sorry, it's just not going to happen. They're going to find a way to continue to counter and beat that. Whereas whereas I have really seen Philly struggle. When Embiid, uh, when the defense really loads up on Embiid at the end of games, uh, and it's something that that I that has been a problem in the past, and it's just something to keep an eye. Did you end up looking up that Embiid? Yeah, number? it's he's one to one. It's three point okay. three assists, three point two turnovers, and that's basically what he that's is for bad. his that's, career. That's not very good. No, that's it's terrible. Bad. That and that spells trouble for a. Because here's the thing: in the playoff series, they're going to make him pass. I'm sorry, and in every matchup I've seen this year against the best of the best defenses, they've made him pass. You know, 
Yep, and especially when your best passer, Simmons, who is a really, really good passer, he can't really operate in the half court. Well, and he doesn't dictate the double teams. No, like he that's the thing. Like he he can dictate it, like he can pass, but can't dictate the double teams. Mm-hmm. Joel and B can dictate the double teams, but he can't pass. So it's kind of like this like kind of best of worst of both worlds, I should it's, say. It'd be tough to do because Embiid has gotten so good as an isolation scorer. His his isolation game is like so much smoother this year. He's he's like really working out a triple threat well. He's basically dictating to any one-on-one matchup exactly what he wants. He gets what he wants anytime unless they bring a double. Mm-hmm. Right. So it'd be really tough to do this, but you, like you almost want to look at posting up Simmons a little bit late in those game situations and having him beat spot up because his three ball is real this year. I want to say he's still around 40 percent from three on the year. He's, yeah, he's having 40%. a shooting performance that looks like Anthony Davis last year where it's like you're like, mm-hmm. oh, is he making a leap? You know, like is something mm-hmm. happening here like that. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you could. You know, they, they do have maybe enough shooting around like a Simmons post up to work. You could put Embiid, Curry, and Tobias on the perimeter with one more guy, maybe Thibault, just because he's a good cutter and he's a good defensive player. Finish with those five, post up Simmons a little bit more because he would be really good working out of those double teams. You get some cutters to the rim, you have guys spotting up. Maybe the late, the late game offense looks a little bit better against the best teams. But then Embiid's been so good this year, how do you tell him that? And that's a human part of coaching. Where how do you tell a guy who's averaging just absurd number, like 28 and 12, and he's doing everything for you? How do you tell him, hey, man, we're going to go to somebody else down the stretch, especially a guy who scores like 15 a game? Good luck. Like, Mm -hmm. he's not going to listen to that. So, yeah, they just – Philly feels like a team to where if they're ever going to get it done, like if they're ever actually going to win a title with this core of guys, with Embiid and Simmons, they're probably still a year away. Like, they're probably still one or two good roster moves away, and they're just – they're getting to the point where, yeah, they can beat really good teams, right? They are, they're there. But typically when you see a true title team, they're blowing out most opponents and they're like putting the beat down on a lot of good teams. Mm-hmm. Like they're not just beating good teams, they're beating them soundly. And Philly's not really doing that yet. And, you know, they're probably not at that point yet. Embiid's only 26 years old. Most guys don't peak till 26, 27, 28 when they're winning a title, right? I think Jordan was 27 or 28, same with LeBron. So... By no means should we be closing the book on Philly as a whole, but just just from watching them a little bit more closely, because I still have them tentatively as my pick out of the East, I still think they're probably about a year away. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of actually winning an NBA championship, unless some injuries happen this year, I think they're a year away. This year to me, anything can happen. It's yeah. weird. Like, I mean, even with the Brooklyn thing, like uh, Brooklyn kind of reminds me a little bit about of the 2016 Warriors where they're a little bit uh, scheme proof in the regular season. Uh, but some a team that's a little easier to game plan for. Like I don't think the Warrior, like I don't think the Warriors were as good as like everyone points to that. Oh, LeBron beat a seventy three win team. Oh, LeBron beat a seventy three win team. And don't get me wrong, that team was really really good. But I think that team's record was a little bit better than what they projected to be in the playoffs. And I think that showed. And and I think that's why Oklahoma City gave them so many problems as well. Like just this basic idea that you had this guy that you had to guard in a way that was different than anybody had ever guarded. And then suddenly Oklahoma city and, and Cleveland, when they had time to game plan for him, found out a way to make him a little more uncomfortable. That kind of reminds me of Brooklyn's defense where it's like in the regular season, no one can figure out how to attack the switching defense. No one can figure out, but, it, but at the, in a playoff series, when there's extensive watching of tape and really, really smart offensive players, whether it's a Kawhi or a LeBron or an Anthony Davis, Paul George, or, you know, a Joel Embiid or whoever it is, Jimmy Butler even might like Jimmy Butler might find a way to like, and damn might find a way to relentlessly attack that, that Brooklyn defense. I just don't think 
you know, I don't think anybody on a random Tuesday night in one 48-minute sample cannot be thrown off by the Brooklyn defense, if that yeah. makes sense. And, and so I, I don't find them as scary as they've looked. And then Utah, we've discussed at length. You know, the Lakers haven't looked overly dominant this year. The, I looked the, like see the, the two through – I want to say the two through six seeds are all a half game apart right now overall, overall in the entire league. Like there's just – everyone is meh. You know, like everyone's not very good, it seems and, like. Like th- that's the weird part to me. A lot of it is just injuries and COVID. Like Sid, mm-hmm. teams have just that's been true. really banged up this year. Like, And just from an injury standpoint, even if COVID wasn't a thing, I think – it would still be really jumbled because there have been just a lot of injuries to key players for mm-hmm. a lot of teams. The so Lakers have lost eight out of 10 and it's, or I want to say six out of eight. And it's because they've been missing all their guys. <laughs> like I don't know what to tell you. It is what it is. Like there's nothing you can do if all your best players are out. Yeah. So it's just a weird year. It's just a weird year. And I, I still tentatively have the Lakers as the favorite, but we'll see what happens. I mean, I, it's a default at this point. Like, I, I think the picture will get. Else. I think the picture will get a lot clearer after the All Star break. Hopefully, teams get healthy. Nobody comes back from All Star with COVID, which we'll see what happens. That could be really messy down there. Um, and if that happens, hopefully teams are healthier. Maybe COVID cases continue to go down, and we get like a more regular second half of the NBA season. But we'll see. I think it's all going to be. It still has a chance to be all really jumbled heading into May. Real quickly before I let you go, like I think that's been one of the interesting things to me is every team this year has had a stretch where they looked over like dominant, with exception of Utah, in my opinion. And I'm not talking about in the record; I'm talking about like really convincing wins. So, for instance, like with Philly, do you mean over good teams? Yeah, like really, really good teams. So, for example, Utah went through this stretch here where every time they played a contender, they were down stars, and then they finally play Philly and they lose. You know, they finally play the Clippers with Kawhi and Paul George and they lose. So, uh, so for instance, like Philly, they can look at themselves in the mirror and be like, we beat the Lakers and Jazz at full strength. You know, the Lakers can look themselves in the mirror. They have a bunch of uh, convincing, like they beat the, the living shit out of Denver. They went into, uh, went into Milwaukee and they were really dominant. I'm, I'm missing off the top of my head. But, or, or they can at least fall back on what they did last year. You know, like, okay, we had this success in the playoffs. The Clippers have a bunch of really convincing wins. They were the ones that beat Utah, uh, for instance. If you go out east, Brooklyn can look at them and be like, look, we lost KD and we ran through all these teams. We beat both L.A. teams in L.A. You know, we we were dominant. We went to Phoenix and we won and we did all this stuff. You know, the the Utah, it's weird because the two times that they've played a contender at full strength in the last couple of months, they lost. You know, and, and that's where it gets a little tricky in the sense that, you know, I compare them a lot with you to the to the uh, Bucks last year, but they're a much less impressive version of them in terms of what they've actually accomplished on the court. Yeah, it's it sucks for Utah because they also get the 2015 Hawks comparison a lot. Yeah, and they're 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 better, better than, than that. They're better than that Hawks team. That's what sucks. Like if they were in the East in 2015, maybe they come out of the East. But with as good as the West is right now, they might be a second round exit after winning you know, 55 to 60 games in a 72-game season. They're going to have an outstanding regular season whether they keep losing to good teams or not. Um, but, yeah, it, it just sucks that they're probably going to have this spectacular regular season, then they're going to flame out in the playoffs, and we're going to have to do the whole referendum on three-point shooting thing again. Like, it's just it's just one big cyclical conversation that we're never going to stop having until a team like Utah wins one, if they ever do, which they probably won't. Well, we, we, we everybody's a fraud when they lose, which is so unfair. Like, that's the thing. It's, it's like the... Uh, 
uh, uh, the stupid, simple fact that 29 of the 30 teams are going to lose. And every one of them is going to have this massive referendum on what they do. Like, get, get ready. Like, the Lakers, I think, are the best team. But there's a good chance they lose this year. And if they do, immediately it's going to be time to throw out last season as, as like, a, a team that was a, a, an extremely lucky team and what they benefited from in circumstance. And it's just unfortunate because that's the way we are. And we talked about this earlier. Like, Twitter's just, you know, a place that lacks context and nuance and all that good stuff. But. Anyway, dude, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to hop on today. I, I, I need to get you out of here for your meeting. Everybody, yep. I'm really, really sorry about the Wi-Fi stuff. I promise I'll get it figured out. Going through a move right now, so it's a little complicated, but I will get it figured out. I feel bad for Tommy because he's over there just looking like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> We're good. We're good. No, I, I think I think uh, we can have some con- fun conversations around uh, some all-star stuff next week if we want to do that. So, so just sure. some, ha- some halfway awards, stuff like that, some stuff that's pretty fun. Um, talk about how the league looks, all that good stuff, and maybe touch on some teams that we haven't yet. Some of the uh, the more middling teams in the league. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could do some like uh, half season grades or something. There like we that. go. There we go. Um, I also need a name for the podcast. Please send me some stuff. Okay. <laughs> all right, everybody, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I am on with Raj tomorrow morning at eight a.m. Hopefully, the Wi-Fi supports me in that regard. Tommy, have a good night, man. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, everybody.